This podcast is brought to you by The Province. Listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Here are your hosts, Paul Chapman and E. Spencer Kite. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Keyboard Kimura podcast here on Province Sports Radio. I am your host, E. Spencer Kite. Joined, it was fitting to me after the craziest week in UFC history to reach out to a man that I have shared several WTF moments with in media rooms in Las Vegas and around this fine country. To discuss all of this craziness, he is MMA Fighting's Sean El Shadi. Thank you for doing this. I know you are exhausted. I know it has been a crazy seven, eight days for you. So I appreciate you having time, man. How are things? Uh, things are good, man. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I mean, like I said off the top, if we're going to talk about the weirdest, most eventful craziest week in UFC history it has to be you and me because we had joked the last time you were on the show we had talked a couple times on Twitter DMing back and forth of like what's going to be the moment like what is going to be the one thing this week that we get back after UFC 200 and do the like dude what was that like what just happened and geek out about for 20-30 minutes we had a pretty full week of them this week (laughs) I think we have to start off with the one that kind of kicked it all off. And as we were talking off air, the one that threw the week into disarray and that's John Jones, um, testing positive being removed from the main event against Daniel Cormier. You were there for both the UFC's press conference and, and John Jones's press conference. What was the immediate re like, how did you guys react when you got the news of like, Hey, you need to come to this. And Jeff Nowitzki stands up there and says, We've been informed by USADA that John Jones has a potential anti-doping violation. I'll tell you what, man. The whole entire day was surreal, to be honest. Because it, 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 I think, that, what was that, Wednesday? Yes. It all, it all bleeds together. So, yeah, that was <laughs> Wednesday. At that point, uh, we had already done open workouts. And we <laughs> the day, I mean, that was the day of the press conference. And John and DC are going back and forth. And John's in such high spirits. And I, I, you can attest, uh, Mark Romani can attest to it, and so can Casey Layden. Uh, I, I, the entire t- the two days, I was just saying, something weird feels like it's going to happen. <laughs> it, this is, I don't know, there's just a feeling in the air that something weird was going to happen. And so Wednesday is, is coming to a close. It's nighttime. Everyone's trying to just get finished working so we can go eat. And, you know, we film our wrap-up shows, and we film all our shows. We're starting to write. Um, and we get this notice that, like, something weird is happening. Is in fact starting to happen. <laughs> And we need to get downstairs. And I will tell you what, it was one of the, I've been doing this a long time at this point. And it was one of the most bizarre feelings and sights that I've ever seen. I mean, you got UFC employees in, you know, gym shorts. You got UFC employees right. coming, coming from spin class. Like, right. <laughs> completely and just totally haphazardly thrown together at the last second. And no one knows what is going on. Not a single person has any idea why we have all come to this <laughs> in the middle of the night to do something. And it's like, this can't be good. 
right? Like, there's no reason. <laughs> there's no that. way this is a happy announcement. There's no way yeah. this is a positive situation. There's no, there's no way that anything positive is coming out of this at all. And it was just the whole vibe, man. The whole vibe was so eerie. Uh, Mark Romani used the word eerie, and that was the perfect way to describe it. Uh, it was just completely eerie. And then you see Dana kind of coming in and out, but and walking through the hallways, coming in and out, and no one knows what's going on. And finally they announced it, and it was just like, I don't know, it was just like somebody just punched the room in the chest. Right. Like the collective room just got punched in the chest. It was It was such a crazy feeling of, this can't this can't be happening no this is happening what's going to happen from here because uh, like it seemed like nobody kind of understood what was going to happen from there and then the, the, the part that broke my heart was then daniel comes up daniel right comes up. right just like man this guy was going to get a seven or eight figure payday the biggest of his career he's a 37 year old athlete he knows the end this is kind of the end of his run like he has a couple more years left but this is like the moment to get paid for all of this work and he this guy is just heartbroken man utterly utterly heartbroken he, he the way he handled it I, I uh give him all the credit in the world because he was in a position where he had obviously been you know crying and he obviously like he was just devastated and he handled it very well he didn't throw john jones under the bus you know he he's saying you know there's due process for everyone but man that was it was a surreal sight it really was and <laughs> And, you know, that ended up being a late night and then an early morning because of the John Jones press conference. Yeah, so this was the first of several moments over International Fight Week that I was alerted to via Twitter. Contrary to many people in this area's belief, I was not in Las Vegas. I was here hanging out in Abbotsford preparing to move. Um, and just, you know, as as we do, jumping on my phone, jump on Twitter and just see... Brett Okamoto tweeting about it and then thankfully throwing up a Periscope feed. So I watched sort of Dana's explanation and, and DC getting up there through Brett being on Periscope. So thank you, Brett. Um, immediately noticed that Dana's head was a very different shade of red than I think it has ever been. Um, I can't imagine just the rage and anger and frustration going through that man's brain at that time. Um, and as you said, the thing that really stood out for me was DC. Um, you mentioned the Miss Payday. It sort of makes me feel frustrated to then see John Jones's manager, Malky Kawa, come out sort of in the days since and be like, well, we lost out on an eight-figure payday. Yeah, but you lost out on it because of you. Daniel Cormier lost out on it because of no fault of his own. And yeah. to then see the embedded moment where Dana oh. breaks the news to him. I have no problem admitting. I know we're not supposed to get attached to these athletes and we're not supposed to, you know, we're supposed to keep emotion out of it and all of those things. I watched that and welled up because DC, as you know, as, as people that even just follow this sport know, he is one of the most genuinely likable, personable, easy to deal with and get along with guys in this sport to know everything that he's been through, everything that went into this for him. And see that genuine reaction where if it were me, I probably pick up that chair and fire it down the hallway and it becomes a tantrum. And DC just his first reaction is sadness. And his second is Dana, what can I do to stay on this card? Because I have put in the work and that was heartbreaking. And so we then get to Thursday morning and sort of, you know, John Jones's PR people and, and his management team and 
uh, Denise White, his public relations representative, send out the message on on Wednesday night saying John will have a press conference Thursday morning. You know what it's going to be. Denied, didn't take anything. We're going to figure it out. We're going to appeal, yada, yada, yada. I appreciated the raw emotion from John and, and seeing him up there teary and having to take a moment. I thought that was that spoke to how serious he understands this is. But that whole thing felt like just a train wreck to me. Like you have had, and I understand that it all came about pretty quick. It was probably less than 12 hours that they had to prep for it. But you know what? Yeah. If you're getting up there and you are John Jones and you have you are Team Jones having come off the year that you just had where you were stripped of your title and suspended and then the redemption tour of I'm a brand new man and all of these things, that press conference needed to be better. The message coming out of your camp needed to be better. And holy shit, did Denise White need to not get up there at the end and tell everybody in the media what a wonderful guy that the dude that signs her paychecks has been over the last year Please include that in your story. It was just a mess to me. Was that like, what was, what were everybody's reaction to that one? Because they were very different press conferences. It was, it was very strange to say the least. And I think (laughs) you hit the nail on the head with Denise coming up there at the end, kind of. um, Starting it with, hi, everybody, you all know who I am, which is just ridiculous. Which in and of itself is the problem, right? Like, right. If, if me and you and all of us know who that woman is, John Jones, crisis management person. Correct. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't know your crisis management representative. And if you're that person, if you're that PR person, and I saw a bunch of PR people that I know jump on Twitter and be like, worst move ever and stuff like that. Just assume that there's at least one person in the room that has no idea who you are and introduce yourself. It takes 13 seconds instead of being the arrogant idiot that wraps up the show with a thud. It really, it, it, I'm telling you, that tells you everything. It's the fact that she doesn't even need to introduce herself. It's just like, you guys know. You guys know what right. I do. Um, you know was, when I came on, you know who I am, you know what I do. It's, you're right, because the, the thing that struck me about the press conference once it was over is that um, the longer it went, the more kind of strange it got because there right. was it didn't seem like there was an organized message right. that we're trying to convey. Um, it was very, it was very messy. And that, like, if you're going to get up there and you're not going to disclose, you know, what John popped for kind of like this process that you guys are ready to go through to, to clear his name and, you know, all of that, like, what are you doing? We, Cause we didn't get much new information from that press conference other than John apologizing, which, right. I mean, is, which is good. That's a positive. But even that, if you call a press conference like that, you usually come up there with some form of long statement that you prepared about Correct. how, you know, all of the steps and how, where you think mistakes could have been made and, you know, a, a formal apology or something like that. He came up there with, you know, five seconds worth of a, a statement and then just kind of fielded questions and, you're right. Like you said, it was it was a little bit of a mess. That, and... that was the first thing that struck me watching it was how does John not have sort of his version of what Jeff Nowitzki presented the night before? Just step up there with a completely prepared, this is what it is. It, it honestly could have been a five-minute press conference, and that would have sucked yeah. for you guys to not be able to ask questions and things like that, or for John to just direct everything to Malky and leave. But it it really was just, it felt kind of haphazard. And like, 
I understand that they got hit with this out of nowhere and didn't expect it. But you yeah. need to do a better job when you are in that position, as you said, not going to disclose what it is. And I understand that situation. They don't, they don't want to say this is what it is because that then leads to further speculation of how and why and, and what potential punishments can be and all of those different things. But it just felt so poor. Like they didn't know who was going to answer questions. Is it John? Is it Malky? And at one point, John left. Like, right. Early on, like I think within the first ten minutes, John just walked off. Yeah. And then we're just we're just basically doing a Malky Kawa press conference for the next we're, like five minutes until John basically. It feels like John was almost urged and pushed back on, onto the stage because it's like, dude, we're at your press conference. Yeah. You have to this is for you. As much as people know your crisis management people and your agent, we need to hear from you because Malky's not going to give anybody anything anything serious he's just going to kind of pass off on questions and talk around them and and it felt weird before we get off of sort of the john jones situation um what do you think this does like does this forever taint john jones's legacy regardless of what the substance is now chael sonnen of course has come out and and said this is what it was we don't know that for sure john hasn't talked about it um, and USADA, per their protocol, won't address it until the athlete does. Um, but regardless of what it is, does this situation of being pulled from the fight three days before, of testing positive for whatever the substance is, does this forever change John Jones' legacy given where it was a year ago and, and sort of where it was building back to? Because it felt like we were all ready to write the prodigal son stories of the redemption of John Jones. And then this happens. You know, it's an, it's an interesting question. I think it, it depends twofold. I mean, if it, if it comes back and, you know, right now it seems like they're taking the tainted supplement defense, right? Which, you know, which we've it, seen, which is fair. And we, we've seen yeah. it proven a couple of times. Yeah. It, I mean, ultimately that's not an excuse. Like they, you can't just fake that. They have right. to prove that that was what it was. And so if that ends up being what it is and it ends up being a tainted supplement, John Jones is just the unluckiest son of a bitch <laughs> in this sport, man. To be able to have, to have something like that come up on you uh, at the biggest stage at, you know, like you said, this sort of culmination of everything that we've been talking about, about how you're a new man, um, on, on something like that on, on two days' notice, that's just unlucky. That's, just, that's not anything of John's own fault. That's just unlucky. However... That being said, uh, if it comes back that it's not a tainted, tainted supplement, that he did in fact have whatever these two banned substances are in his system. And again, it's hard to say definitively because we don't know what those are until USADA and or John Jones talks about it. Um, otherwise, it's all speculation. But if he if it does come back that he had these in his, in his system, I mean, that man, that is devastating. That is utterly devastating. This, this is a man who we were talking about him as the Michael Jordan of our sport, yep. who, who is already, he's, he's 27 or 28 years old, and he's, he was already being in the GOAT discussion. And right. like he said, this is a, a guy who has, you know, five, six, seven, eight good years left in him to be still in his fighting at his prime. Like, we don't know what he could have been had he been able to fight as much as he should have been able to fight over the past several years. <laughs> right. And if it comes back that his uh, brazenness and, you know, his cheating – ruined uh, a stage that the UFC was, you know, trying to set up as the biggest as its own in the, in the promotion's history and, and ultimately a last uh, show for, you know, this era that we've had, this Lorenzo Fertitta, 
uh, Dana White, Frank Fertitta era, then that's – I feel like that's not something that people are going to be able to reconcile um, because, you know, it, it, all of John's problems, the, the hit and run, the cocaine, the, the multiple DUIs, all of these different things, it seems like people were willing to give him a pass this time. Right. This week because of, like you said, the, the going on tours, talking about how much of a changed person he is. If all of that comes back empty and all right. of that – just comes back as just a facade that was being put up while John was actually cheating. Um, and, you know, it, it, it kind of culminated in this massive explosion of, of sorts in which I can't. Just like, a giant self-inflicted dumpster fire. Yeah, just a big shit storm, for lack of a better word. Um, I feel like that's a lot harder for – that's going to be a lot harder for fans to reconcile than, you know, Anderson Silva getting some Thai sex juice. <laughs> Right, to recover from a to recover from a broken leg or something like that, like that. I don't know. It, it, it's if it, if it comes back that it, these are some PEDs, and he took them willingly. I feel like that's never going to leave his legacy. And it seems like that's what he's most heard about is the idea that he's now going to be looked at as a cheater. Right. Two things for me, and I I like that you mentioned Anderson Silva, and I will give credit where it is due. I was watching this on Saturday night with my wife, and she said, "Is it weird that everybody's celebrating?" Anderson Silva coming back and taking this fight on on two days notice and burying John Jones didn't Anderson Silva just get suspended like a year ago very well made point Mrs. Kite greatly appreciated because we are a very forgiving industry like we these guys serve their penalties and they get to come back and we've seen it over and over again with myriad fighters Anderson Silva being the most recent example and so I think you're right if it is tainted supplement then that really changes things the other part for me and i think you used the best word imaginable and that's brazen john at that press conference before this news broke when he said i beat dc at the height of my partying just felt like the most tone-deaf statement i have heard in a sport where guys make tone-deaf statements all the time like guys say dumb shit regularly and for John to be up there and it be, look at how great I did even when I was burning it at both ends and absolutely living this wild life, that's not what he should be presenting. It should just be the consistent message of, I'm better now, I've dealt with those things, let's worry about going forward, let's focus on what I can be. And that for me, and it's fair or not, it leads me to the, what you said of of if John is just being brazen here and was like, yep, I'm going to take this stuff. I'm not going to get caught. I'm John Jones. That's trouble, man. That is that is a different level of shit that you are buried under to try to come back from. And it's, listen, if it's two years, he comes back, he's 30, 31 years old, still time, phenomenal talent. It is possible, but he will have such an uphill battle. And for a guy like that, that as you said, has been so concerned about image, has been so concerned about legacy, you start to wonder. And and I think somebody talked about it at that press conference. I think somebody asked him about it of like, you have your situation in the past and your substance abuse issues. Are there any concerns? And John says, oh no, I'm, I'm sober and I have been for a year now and it'll be fine. And this is, you know, this is just disappointing, but it's nothing like that. Nothing is going to change. If this comes back as you were taking something and here's two years, we don't know where John Jones ends up in two years. Like, I hope 
as a human being and as a, you know, not wanting to see anything bad happen to this young man, that everything, you know, he surrounds himself with some better people and he gets through it. But this could be a trigger point, man. And that's scary because he is a phenomenal talent and it could end up being a, it could end up being a Todd, not even a Todd Marinovich situation because John Jones is already better than Todd Marinovich ever was. This could be, you know, Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Gooden, some of these guys that were phenomenal and still didn't reach their potential because of self-inflicted issues off, off the field and out of the cage. So it'll be interesting to, to see where this goes. Yeah. It's the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. E. Spencer Kite with Sean L. Shaddy of MMAfighting.com. Let's get to the actual fights. There were three nights of fights. There were 35 bouts, 70 fighters. Rather than go through all of them, because at this point we have all talked about sort of the key fights and the big takeaways and things like that, I wanted to get from you just some performances and some fighters that, that stood out. And then on the backside of that, we will address some fighters that didn't really have a good week. So who were some of the people that, that really turned in excellent performances that, that stand out for you in this sea of action that we got over three days? Well, for me, it's, it's threefold. And uh, none of these are going to be, you know, some uh, underdog picks or anything like that. <laughs> niche picks. But to me, the, the three winners that stood out from the weekend were Joanna and Jacek. Uh, first of all, because I mean, that how how brilliant <laughs> that fight? That was the the amount of of professional fighters in awe of her. Right, was I think the most telling point uh, uh, when it came to that fight because that was just pure savagery from a 115 pound woman. That was one of the she was so fast and, and to be able to come back from being down 2-0 and just blow the doors out of the last three rounds. Right. Like the striking stats are utterly ridiculous if you look at them for those last three rounds. That was that was an amazing performance, and I honestly don't know where that division goes from here. Because I mean, obviously there are places for it to go. Uh, Kovalevich versus uh, Namajunas is probably a number one contender fight, but it's just Claudia Gadelia looks like the number two in that division, and that right. almost looks pretty definitive. And if if she's going to be stuck in a Junior dos Santos Joseph Benavides type of situation, like. Joanna and Jacek might be <laughs> ruling this division for years, uh, and I don't think anybody has a problem with that. To be honest, she has become such a fan favorite so quickly; it is really cool to see. Yeah, and, when when all the professional fighters are in awe of your performance, like it's a very congratulatory industry, and it's like anything; people want to see quality performances and they applaud them. But when everybody universally is just like, "That was dope," and part of it is those swagger moments where she gives Claudia Godella the get up. Don't sit there on the ground. Get up. Let's go. Those for me are the things that take her over the top. And and I'm sure we've talked about this in the past and people that have listened to this podcast have heard me rave about her personality and the charisma. And it's such a different thing. And when Patrick and I previewed this event, that was one of the things that we factored into it was just, you can't underestimate the value of championship swagger like it's a real thing it it means something and we've seen it with champions that have lost where that confidence is broken she survived those first couple of rounds and battled through some tough moments and the minute she turned that fight around the swagger kicked in and we saw her calling claudia Godella up a number of times and just being like nope come fight on my terms and get the rest of this beating yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> and then 
Uh, you know, my second my second star from the weekend, uh, I would do I, Eddie, Eddie Alvarez. Man, this is a guy who has been the he's the underground king. He is he has been on the fringes of MMA for so long, for over a decade, and it seemed like it took up until Thursday for everyone to try kind of that realization to hit everyone of this. Oh man, this is one of the greatest ever. Like this, he is an all time great lightweight, and I don't think we realized that until he was just waxing up. Right. <laughs> Rafael Dos Anjos in under a round. I mean, it's crazy to think about how far and how long this road has been for him. Like, you you, you hear him talk now, and he's just so articulate in, in the way he kind of uh, talks about these, these situations and what he's been through and the ups and downs. I mean, this is a guy who was the Bellator, two-time Bellator <laughs> champion. He's beaten the Strikeforge champion. He's beaten the WEC champion. He was the effing Yama champion. He was the dream. <laughs> he was the uh, Bodog champion. The Bodog champion. He fought in, in uh, you know, MFC. Like, he, he, all of these different, <laughs> all of these different organizations he has been king of. And it, it took until just right now for him to kind of reach the pinnacle of it. But just his resume is so unbelievably impeccable. It is crazy to see. And it was very cool to see the culmination of, of you know, all of the, all of a decade worth of work come together for him for that for that one night, and he's been very reflective of it since. And, and again, I, I love hear I've loved hearing him speak over the past couple of days. He, he was on the MMA Hour or on our website on Monday, and he was talking about how these type of fights, the Rafael dos Anjos type of fights, they make him terrified, and right. him being terrified causes weird things to happen to his body, where he gets the most savage knockouts of his career, and just the way he was explaining it. I've never heard a fighter be that open, talking about just being afraid and you know the the, react, the, the kind of primal response your body has to fear. It, it, it's it's amazing, and um, I mean lightweight is is one of these weird divisions where no one can seem to hold on to the strap; it gets passed around like a hot potato. Uh, it still is a UFC record for Benson and, and BJ to uh, have defended it twice. Right. But to wonder, is, is Eddie Alvarez going to be the guy that, that's able to break that? I don't know, but it's going to be interesting to see. Well, and, and to tie in the championship swagger from Joanna Janjacek, hers was in the cage. Eddie's was at the post-fight press conference where he sits up there and says, you know, Dana, it's been like, look at this road that I've had in the UFC, and it's been a long career, and fought these four guys back to back to back to back. I really... I'm ready for like, just give me a gimme fight. Give me an easier test. Just put Conor McGregor in the cage with me. Mic drop, walk away, jam done. <laughs> Eddie Alvarez wins the internet for the week. Um, absolutely phenomenal use of his time, use of that platform. And as you said, I mean, a guy that if you've followed this sport, I remember sort of when Eddie signed with Bellator, that was a big deal. And, and as he was, their initial champion and moving into those fights with Pat Curran and the first Michael Chandler fight, it was, where does he fit in the lightweight division? Is he top five? Is he top three? Is he top 10? Because we always have that UFC measuring stick. And then he loses his debut to Donald Cerrone and he looks undersized and he looks overwhelmed and, and overmatched, quite frankly. And now he's got the belt. And, and as you said, it's a difficult belt to hold on to. Um, seems to be that's happening a lot in the UFC these days, and I'll get your opinion whether that's good or bad shortly. But, I mean, there's guys already lining up. Khabib Nurmagomedov is going to want a title shot. Conor yeah. McGregor, if he beats Nathan Diaz, probably has to go back to featherweight, but you know he's going to say something about Eddie Alvarez calling him out. 
Tony Ferguson is on a crazy winning streak. He doesn't get the big fight that he was expecting tomorrow in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. But if he extends to eight, that's tough to argue against. So it's great to see Eddie finally get there. Now comes the hard part. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my, to me, the biggest star and the final star of this weekend and the man I was most impressed with, and I don't even, I mean, it was, it just, his performance blew me away was Jose Aldo. I, the whole entire weekend, I was talking <laughs> up that I felt like the, the entire MMA world forgot about this guy. It was the ultimate y'all must have forgot. <laughs> this was a guy who seven months ago, we were talking about him as one of the greatest fighters to ever live, the greatest featherweight to ever live. And he loses in 13 seconds, and suddenly he's this chump. He's this <laughs> easy chump that I, the, the disrespect thrown around him in his name over the months since has been utterly insane to me. Um, and he just looked that the, his fight against the first three rounds of his fight against Frankie Edgar was just MMA perfection to me. Like that yeah. was that was peak MMA. Just watching it, the fast twitch nature of that fight, and just the the technicality of that fight. He looks so good, man. He looks so good. And I come away from that a hundred times more interested in a Conor McGregor rematch or, or something like that. And especially after seeing you, did you see those two photos of Conor standing up? I did. That's, just, I don't know. I don't know who took them, but they are amazing. Uh, I will freely admit to probably going to find some way to screen print one of those and like get that mounted for my office because that's a phenomenal picture. Absolutely. In, in, yeah, I, I just was – his takedown defense, that was – the one thing that struck me when I did the night we faced Aldo where I kind of talked to everyone that, that fought Jose was people – wrestlers who would talk about his takedown defense and how he was almost just superhuman in his ways to get – to jam his heels down into the cage. Right. It's not – like be physically unable to be moved. And you saw that against Frankie, man. Like how many – I don't know how many takedowns he avoided, but it was just like easy. Well, and there, there were a couple of them where it was, I'm just going to fling Frankie Edgar off of me. And that, for me, I agree with you 100% that he is the ultimate you almost have forgotten. We, we really slept on him going into this. I will make the argument as somebody that picked Frankie that thought these were two fighters heading in opposite directions right now, coming off very different situations. I thought Frankie's confidence would be at an all-time high as it was going in. And I didn't know what Aldo was going to be like. We were there when he got dropped in 13 seconds. And it was a very different Jose Aldo in the opening 13 seconds of that fight than we had ever seen. So how was he going to respond? But within the first five minutes of that fight, it was clear that we were all wrong. And and the old Jose Aldo is back. Not the WEC Jose Aldo, but this UFC version that is Almost unhittable, almost untouchable. No Conor McGregor hit him. I know Conor McGregor touched him and knocked him out. But this was, as you said, peak Jose Aldo and peak MMA striking mastery. Yeah, absolutely. And so on the other end of the spectrum, we've got the good. With all, there, there's got to be balance. So who were the, let's go with three again. Who were the three that you just came away from this week thinking... That was not what I expected. That's not what I thought I would see. I really don't know where this guy or girl goes from here because that was just not good at all. Um, let's see. I, I think the first thing that springs to mind is, is kind of what we dealt with. It's not a particular person, but just as a, as a whole on Friday, um, the idea of sticking 
another Ultimate Fighter finale <laughs> in the middle of these kind of weekends. And let's be honest, like no one watches this show, okay? Right. Like, in general, no one watches the show. I watched a little bit of this season just because I was interested in in light heavyweights and Joanna's relationship with Claudia, but even I didn't watch all of it. Right. And, and to like, if you're going to do these kind of finales, I think the idea of putting, um, you know, the 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 two finals, the actual show finals, as sort of this co-main event type of situation, I think that's antiquated because it it really really slowed down the card's momentum on on Friday. Right. Because we had, you know, when you come into that fight, the whole card was relatively slow, and then, um, you know, you you have Korean Superboy comes out and he looks amazing, and everyone's talking about him. Then you got Will Brooks come out, and it's like this moment we've all been waiting for to see how good Will Brooks is. And then we go into these two fights where it's just, I mean, the Suarez, the Tatiana Suarez fight wasn't long, so it's hard to complain about that. But the Andrew Sanchez career <laughs> is just utterly, uh, like, I will never watch that fight again in my life. When, it, the, when the best moment of your fight is Khalil Roundtree telling his mom to shut up, <laughs> that tells you something. And listen, that's a great moment. And shout out to Khalil Roundtree for, for taking the bar from... Elias Theodoro's high mom, also on an Ultimate Fighter finale, Tough Nations, and turning it into and like flipping it on its ear and now doing the shut up mom. Yeah. Re- yeah. Really not the thing you want people talking about with your with your Ultimate Fighter finale. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, this seems like a small nitpick, but it just felt like it slowed the showdown, to be honest. And if we would have started the card with those two fights and then, you know, go into the Superboy and Will Brooks and then that leads right into UNA and Jacek. I felt like that would have created some really nice momentum for the card, whereas it really felt like a drag, and it felt like we were all just waiting for the women to come out. Um, and that's just my opinion, I guess. No, I, I agree completely, and I think, you know, that one of the tough things with, with The Ultimate Fighter is that they always seem to announce that next season before we're even done, and so you get through this one, and you're like, okay, it should this should be the end of it. This is where you pull the plug, and you remember... But they've already announced this next one, and they're going to start filming if they haven't already. And so we know another one is coming, and it's like, I understand that it does good ratings for Fox Sports 1 in terms of what Fox Sports 1 does. And it's pretty easy content for them, but it's not helping the UFC at this point. And listen, I think Khalil Roundtree is going to be a pretty good fighter down the road. I think Andrew Sanchez will be a reasonable addition to the middleweight division. Um maybe top out like I don't think he's going to be as good as some of these previous ultimate fighter winners I think Tatiana Suarez has a lot of potential and it's good to see it's good to see more prospects in the women's rank being added but I agree with you sticking them as the co-main event and having the lead in where you have to watch the videos on both and and it just becomes an hour of slog after as you said Joaquin Silva kicks off that card with 34 second knockout Korean Superboy does the 12-year-old serial killer thing against Tiago Tavares. We get ill will, and then it just grinds to a halt for a bit. Definitely something that needs to be reconsidered and, and refigured. What are the other two for you? Uh, for me, Johnny Hendricks. Man, I was, uh, like, that was a great <laughs> fight. So I want to preface all of this by saying that was a real fun fight. I enjoyed that fight. It wasn't a bad fight by any stretch of the word. Um, but man, so we were there at the way on, I believe it was Friday morning and it would, I've said this uh, several times at this point, but it was general, generally scary, genuinely scary to see Johnny Hendricks up there on the scale, uh, 
shaking, uh, trembling, like unable to. He looked like a zombie. He looked like a ghost. And I like you. Look, you watch him fight against Kelvin. It's just not the same guy that was the king of welterweight. Not the same guy that fought ten rounds with Robbie Lawler. Not the same guy that, in my opinion, beat George Saint Pierre. Like he, physically and mentally, he just looks different. And I don't know if he's ever coming back. It seems like he's just been ravaged by these weight cuts. And he just looks like a completely different physical specimen than what he used to look like. And it, it's sad, man. Yeah, it's it's tough. And you have to wonder if now the combined years of wrestling weight cuts all throughout, you know, being a kid, high school, college, into the UFC, into MMA... If all of that has has added up and is taking a toll, you have to wonder if those 10 rounds that you mentioned with Robbie Lawler have taken a physical toll on him. Um, of course, you know, he's, he's working with a nutritionist and a weight management specialist in Lou Giordano, who, you know, two, two main clients this past week kind of had a bad week in Johnny Hendricks and, and John Jones, so that doesn't reflect very well on him. But you have to wonder if Johnny Hendricks is a guy that's going to get the the John Lineker sort of lecture of that's it, you're done, you're going up because he had that situation in Houston where he couldn't make weight and that fight got pulled, misses weight here. The other thing I wonder about is, is does the UFC and it would be, it would be surprising to me because we're not that far removed from Johnny Hendricks being welterweight champion, as you said, and, and I agree with you being a guy that probably should have gotten a decision win over George St. Pierre before George went on his sabbatical. I sat and watched that fight and and knowing everything that we know of Johnny Hendricks' history, I wondered if he's maybe a guy that gets released and the UFC just says, you know what, it's not worth it for us anymore. And he becomes a guy that either calls it a career because he's tired of putting his body through it or moves on to somewhere else because it's just not the same. You're 100% right. It's not the same. It was still an entertaining fight. I thought Calvin Gastelum looked very good. but a year ago, a year and a half ago, that one-two doesn't land as clean on Johnny Hendricks as it did that night. And, yeah. and I think that's just, as you said and as we've talked about, just cumulative years of, of all of this finally taking effect. And, and he's a different guy now, and that's unfortunate to see, and I wonder where it's going to go going forward. Yeah, I mean, like you said, he, he's... He's smaller and he's just slower and he just doesn't seem like the physical specimen that he was. And it sucks because if you if there was ever a case for a 175 pound division, <laughs> that dude, that's Johnny yeah. Andrews' wheelhouse, man, because he's obviously too small for welterweight. I mean, this is a guy who's 5'9, or I mean, too small for middleweight. I'm sorry. Right. He's 5'9, but him and Gastelum both are made for like that type of 175 pound division. And we've heard uh, fighters before lament the fact that. You know, once you get to 155, there's this 15 uh, pound jump between right. divisions, and it's just that's almost too much. And uh, I, I know that they don't want to, you know, dilute what they have going with the amount of belts. But if, if there ever was to be a 175 pound division, I think he would do very well in it. <laughs> yeah, unfortunate for him, he, he fights at a time where that's not a thing. And last one of the disappointing international fight week performances. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go outside of the box on this and say it's not even a performance, but TJ Dillashaw looked looked fantastic against Rafael Asuncao, and he finally he avenges a loss, and you know he, he calls for his chance to get back in the title picture. And then yesterday, the pay sheets 
for this fight come out. And this is a guy who was the UFC bantamweight champion. He defended his belt uh, twice, I believe. And just in his last fight was a title fight where he was basically one round away from retaining the title. Right. In all, by all respects, because that was such a close fight. Dude, you, how is he making 25 and 25? <laughs> you have a guy like, like Sage Northcutt making 50 and 50. And this isn't even to pile on to Sage Northcutt because I am all for these guys getting paid as much money as humanly possible. All, every single fighter at UFC 200 was underpaid. Like These guys can get paid as much money as possible, and I will be happy about it. But how is TJ Dillashaw making 25 and 25? <laughs> Like there better be insane backroom bonuses going on there because none of that makes any sense <laughs> at all, and it's it's somewhat outraging to be to be honest. Like well, this former champion, how is he making so little money? Well, and how did he have to take a pay cut? Like he he fought Dominic Cruz in January, as you mentioned. Disclosed payment for that fight was seventy thousand dollars. You would assume that that is his show money, so there was probably another seventy on the other side of it. And then to turn around six months later and fight, as you said, Rafael Asensio, get the victory. And then 25 and 25 just seems absolutely ridiculous. It also serves as a pretty good segue into this next thing. Because speaking of money, William Morris Endeavor, IMG, a bunch of other partners and, and equity firms ponied up $4 billion with a B dollars to purchase the UFC on late Sunday night, early Monday morning, officially announced. If you can if the league is worth four billion, how is TJ Dillashaw making 25 and 25? That's a very good question. And I'm <laughs> you I don't want to harp on it, but you look at it like if TJ Dillashaw lost that fight against a top three opponent in his division, he was gonna come home making twenty five thousand yeah, after but, being champion. But you, man, you bring up a good point. You bring up a very good point. I, I think one of the most interesting storylines coming out of this sale, aside from all of the obvious of what's the new regime going to be like and all of this different thing, to me, I am most interested in seeing how this, now that we have a price tag on this, right? It is worth $4 billion because somebody paid $4 billion. Correct. There, this is not a hypothetical number anymore. As your, as your colleague Luke Thomas likes to say, it's not about worth. It's not about what you deserve. It's what somebody is willing to pay you. Yes. Somebody was willing to pay $4 billion for the UFC. This is a, this is a real valuation <laughs> that was made that people, somebody looked at the UFC and it said, this is worth, all of these fighters are worth $4 billion. That is an amazing, amazing um I mean that's that's going to be that's an amazing number. That's the biggest number in sports history in any kind of transaction in sports history, and you've already started to see it. These guys who the Jeremy Stevens of the world, the Ally Aquinas of the world, who are sitting here looking at this price, <laughs> saying, "Where's my piece of this?" Right. I'm sitting here fighting for fifty grand when this whole thing is worth four billion dollars. That's dude. I am. So interested to see how that moves playing forward because now we have a number. For for the for the longest time we haven't had a number. All of this has just been, um, you know, hypothetical of how much is all of this worth. I don't think any of us thought that this was worth four billion dollars. That is that is the same number as Star Wars. <laughs> if I gave you, if I said to you, Spencer, would you rather own Star Wars or the UFC? I think you, I know what your answer would be. 
Um, if, if, if this results in the fighters looking to make some form of push closer to a, uh, a revenue split that's more on par with, you know, the NBA. The with, NFL, with every other major sports league in the world. Yeah, so where it's not, I don't know what the revenue split is at this point, but it is certainly not even remotely close to 50-50. It is probably like 9-91. I'm curious to see how fighters treat this moving forward. Now that there is this physical number, and it's already started, and I think that's a good sign, and I, I, I want it to continue to keep happening. I, I feel like this is the point. If, if something's, if this is, if there is some form of inflection point, some tipping point to where change starts starts to happen, it's going now is the perfect time to make it happen for fighters. He is MMAfighting.com's Sean L. Shaddy. I am E. Spencer Kite. This is the Keyboard Kamara podcast on Province Sports Radio, talking about this UFC sale and sort of some of the ramifications and potential storylines to come from it. I agree with you that that fighter pay and revenue equity and the split of that is are is going to be the biggest story beyond because Dana White is staying on we've we've learned that uh Darren Ravel of ESPN reporting this morning Tuesday morning that it is a five-year deal for Dana White to stick around uh he will get a percentage of net revenue is what Darren Ravel is reporting so he has the potential to sort of have that Roger Goodell type income, which is big numbers. If if you're not familiar, Roger Goodell made about $21 million last year. So Dana has the potential to make a lot of money for being the president of the UFC going forward. My question to you about sort of this fighter pay thing, and you're right, Jeremy Stevens, I saw Johnny Case yesterday jump out and do the like, this needs to be 50-50 or 54-46, not whatever it is. I agree with you. It's nowhere close to 50-50 now. If you're the new owners, if you're William Morris Endeavor IMG and, and all of these smart businessmen that have accumulated $4 billion to be able to buy the UFC, and you know this is going to be something that you have to tackle. There's no way that they went into this deal not knowing that that number being public and the various numbers and financial details that we know about the UFC being public were going to be talking points and things that they have to deal with very early on in their ownership. Is there a way from the ownership side to address it to where we don't get to a union and collective bargaining and it having to be, and it getting to 50-50 or somewhere close that they can soothe the athletes and satiate the athletes, but still retain large portions of money coming into their coffers? Uh, you know, that's a very good question. And it's not, it's not really one that I, to be honest, I, I'm not sure. That's a very good question. And I think that one of the smartest takes that I saw coming from the fighters was actually from Cody Gibson. He, he, said, he was very, being very realistic. He said, you know, it's wishful thinking to suggest that this sale is going to equal higher fire pay, but I've never made an investment in hopes of finding ways to slow down my returns. And that's kind of where we find ourselves now. <laughs> right. If you're going to spend $4 billion to acquire the UFC, you certainly don't want to do anything to make, to ensure that you're going to get a, to the, to whatever money is coming back to you is going to be, take a major hit. So I don't know, man. I don't know. I feel like we're at this, this very strange time in the sport and a very important time in the sport. And it really is going to be, if, if something's going to happen, it's going to happen now. 
or it's going to start to happen now. At least some kind of momentum is going to happen now. And if it doesn't, I think they're going to lose an opportunity. The one thing that I have sort of talked about and floated out there a couple of times since this sale and even before it, um, in talking to some people about fighter pay and things like that, and I would love to get your feedback and opinion on it, is using that number that we, we know from last year of the UFC making roughly $160 million in profit. Um, if you're this new group and you've made $160 million last year, are you able to pocket that 100 and take that 60 and look at your roster and go, we have less than 600 fighters. So if we spread that $60 million out across our entire roster, everybody gets an equal share. That's $100,000 for each person. That has a significant increase, a significant change for all of these fighters. It means the athletes that have part-time jobs or full-time jobs no longer necessarily have to have them. It means they can go out and train and, and pay for the training and the information and the things that they need as professional athletes without having to worry about my bills getting paid, things like that. And if you're William Morris Endeavor and IMG and all of the, the new ownership group, can you look at it and say, listen, yeah, it's $60 million and that's a lot of money. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what we paid for this company. But the return we'll get is happier athletes athletes that are better prepared, better conditioned, and therefore performance is going to increase and get better. Is that is that a way to approach it where you're then, you know, if you give these guys something rather than giving them nothing and saying, no, we're just going to keep it all, can you provide them with, say, whatever that math would be, and I'm going to do the math quickly because I don't want to just <laughs> just throw it out there, but 60 out of one out of 160, can you give them... 37.5% of your profits from last year and retain the other 62% and find that balance where everybody's happy. You're not making as much. You could make that extra 60 million, but then your athletes are pushing to get 50% and they're getting hurt and they're having part-time jobs. And Joanne Calderwood's having to sit at press conferences and be like, I'm bummed out. Now I got to go home to Scotland and get a real job so I can go back to Montreal and train with the best coaches in the sport like a real professional athlete gets to. To me, it's to me, if if I ever get the chance to stand in front of that group or if they ever want some un, unsolicited advice, that's the advice I'm giving because just like find a way to satisfy people that meets everybody's requirement and works for everybody. And I think there's compromises like that out there that they can get to. It's just a matter of, do the rich guys mind giving up some of their money? Well, that, that's the thing, right? <laughs> if you're sitting here telling me that is a solution to say, hey, we're going to spread $60 million across the, the roster, I'm sure they, the roster would not complain about that. Right. That seems very idealistic though. And I, I, again, <laughs> I, I've never seen a businessman spend so much money and then be so willing to, and uh, then be like, Hey, let's just yeah. give away 60 million. Yeah. Just wantonly give away that much money. Um, <laughs> but to be honest, but are though, they going to make it back? That would be my question. And that would be the first thing I ask them in that room is well, if I, I honestly think it's going to be a long time. It's going to take a very, very long time to make back 4 billion. I don't know how, Oh, it's yeah, but but even but even if an immediate cash infusion basically is what you're suggesting, even that wouldn't go as far to 
fix the problem. That right. Like, the, like the P- fighters would get a one, say, again, because I'm not, I was not ever good at math. So math is not my strong <laughs> suit. But let's say they get, each fighter gets 100, 100 grand, which is very, already a very idealistic way to approach it. Correct. Um, that's a one-time cash infusion. That's not changing the actual problems at hand where some guys are making $10,000 to fight at, at whatever show. Right, and TJ right. Dillashaw, guy who's been doing this for a long time, is making 25000 Nate Diaz, a guy who has been doing it for a decade until the Connor fight, was making like, I, I, I don't I know. Think the exact it was, I think it was 20 yeah. or maybe 40. Yeah, not even like 28,000 or something to fight. Like, that's just crazy. And that won't change from just a one time cash infusion. It, it genuinely feels like the, the change that needs to happen now that we have a number on this, 4 billion, is a, a, a march towards, you know, some level of, of revenue split that's even at least moderately better than this because this is insane to see this a company worth so much and and (laughs) again i keep harping on tj dillashaw but it blew me away to find out that he could have made twenty five thousand dollars, man right not okay that's not okay and uh one-time cash infusion would be nice but that problem will still exist do you think there is the possibility and i've had off the record conversations with people about this of of let's rip away the facade of independent contractor and let's make these guys employees. Yes, there is a lot that comes with that. Do you think that's something that we will ever see from the UFC? Um, it's a good question. And I think it's a question worth asking. I, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I would say no in the, under the old, <laughs> I would say no under the old, yeah, regime. under the old regime. It's an easy, quick, of course not. Yeah. And I would say no, probably under this new regime, but we don't really actually know what's going to change and how, how change is going to be in, implemented and, and what kind of uh, owners we're going to be dealing with. But um, I, would, I would guess that there, that would not be something that the UFC <laughs> initiates. If that's going to be something that's initiated, right. it's going to be from the other side of the table. Again, people with lots of money don't like just giving away all of that money. Exactly. Before we get out of here, what changes, if any, are there any other things besides this fighter pay issue that you're looking forward to, that you anticipate, or a year from now, is this still going to feel like the same UFC we've known for the last 15 years of the Zufa era? You know, I think that's the money question, right? Is what's going to happen from here? How is this going to change? Uh, it's, it's difficult to say at this point, but it does seem like there's going to be an element of trying to keep, to keep everything, uh, you know, on the, the status quo more or less, for lack of a better term. Because if you're going to spend $4 billion on something, you're not going to try to dramatically right. change it within the first year. Uh, I think keeping Dana White on, in sh- for, I think I saw that he's going to be on for five years, or right. that his contract yep. is ni- that 9% for five years from Darren Ravel. Uh, keeping him on for five years, he- yeah, some element of familiarity. It, it seems like some- you're keeping him on to do more of this, as opposed to keeping him on to then completely change what it was that you bought this for. Um, so I doubt that we're going to see major change, to be honest. I think they're going to try to keep it status quo and keep it going, maybe do, maybe do small tweaks here and there, but I'll be surprised if we see anything major within the next year. Yeah, the one thing that I've heard Dana White mention as a potential change and, and potential opportunity for change that I definitely don't want to see is MMA fighters in more movies and more television movies going the WWE films route, because if you've ever watched a WWE film, they are (laughs) terrible. 
if you have ever seen any of the current UFC athletes that have tried to transition into movie, no disrespect. Well, yeah, disrespect. They're mostly bad. Um, so we don't need more of that. Let's let's help them make more money in the cage at what they're best at. Um, you, sir, make, I would hope, very good money or reasonable money, satisfactory money for you at least, doing what you are one of the best at. That is covering this sport of MMA and MMA fighting. Before we let you go, before I let you get on with your day, let people know what's coming up, what they can can look out for from you and how they can follow you going forward. Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Sean Oshadi. Um, I It's too early for me to say, but I, <laughs> I may have something of interest that people might enjoy coming out next month. I can't say yet, and it's still in the, it's still in the works, but keep an eye out for that. Those are the teases that I love. I will no doubt just pester you nonstop <laughs> via DM probably every couple of days of like, okay, tell me what it is. I won't tell him. Just tell me what it is. Um, be on the lookout for it. Even though it may be a month off and it's, and it's just a pipe dream for all of us to read right now, follow Sean throughout. His work is always spot on. His takes are, they're not hot takes. They're not just wild thrown out there. They are well thought out. They are well articulated. It is always a pleasure to read his stuff. It is always a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Thank you for taking time and doing this again. Absolutely, my friend. It's always a pleasure. As for me, you guys know who I am, where to find me, E. Spencer Kite on Twitter, at Spencer Kite on Facebook, at ESK Journo. This has been the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. Enjoy the fights tomorrow. We have fights tomorrow. No rest for the, no rest for the wicked. Seriously. <laughs> oh, man. Enjoy them, everybody. Enjoy them, Sean. Thank you for doing this. We will talk to you again later in the week, folks. Take care. You've been listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Read the Keyboard Kimura blog on theprovince.com, follow them on Twitter at Keyboard Kimura, or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash keyboardkimura. Kimura.